It is indeed a pleasure to have this privilege to play here for you. We, we intend to give you a very fine program, so just settle back, relax, and enjoy the moment. 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 Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome. Welcome to Mic'd Up, the podcast. I'm your host, Mika Gadsden. We're recording live <laughs> from Charleston, South Carolina. This is an unapologetic podcast that really does try to center the black experience um, from the perspective of someone like myself, a Gullah Geechee descendant, um, born and raised in Jersey. Um, so, uh, yeah, welcome to the podcast if you're new. If you're not, thank you for coming back. This episode, um, I'm going to do something that I've been wanting to do in, I guess, in audio podcast form. Now, if if you followed me for a minute on Instagram or over on Twitch every morning, every weekday morning, you know that I love books. Um, and it's important for me to make sure uh, much of the content I create or to make sure that the commentary that I offer up is informed. And so that's easy for me to do because I love books. <laughs> um, and because this is my birthday week, uh, y'all, yep, your girl is turning 41, 41 Savage, <laughs> November 10th. Uh, details in the show notes if you want to tip me. <laughs> but nah, seriously, on a serious note, because it is my birthday week, I wanted to do an audio podcast episode. Um, I wanted to record an audio podcast episode that centered something that I really love, um, which is just reading. Uh, so uh, I'm going to give you five, five, my top five favorite books of the moment. Uh, this was tough. I really probably could do a top 20 because I am one of those people that reads multiple books. Like I read multiple books at one time, which is probably not the best thing, but I don't know. It's working for me. I might not finish every book uh, in a timely fashion, but I definitely love the fact that I can jump in and, and go between, you know, go be between one genre to the next, all of that. Right. So I'm encouraging you to kind of <laughs> follow suit, perhaps. Um, but let me give you my top five books of the moment. Now, these books will um, also vary um, in genre. So d don't worry. I got something for everybody. I think I think this runs the gamut. But so, so what you'll hear is um, in this episode is hear me um, introduce the book title and then I'll include a clip from an interview or some sort of other audio content to give you a better sense of either the book itself or hear directly from the author. Uh, you'll hear directly from each author uh, in all of these clips. And if you want to watch uh, perhaps the full, if you either want to watch or listen to the full uh, interview or, or program, all of the clips um, the origins of the clips will be uh, linked linked in the uh, show notes. So check out the show notes for more details to hear full interviews. Okay, all right. So the first book up is "They Were Her Property: White Women as Slave Owners in the American South" by Stephanie E. Jones Rogers. So um, instead of me going on and on about how much I love this book, here check out this um, excerpt from um, a not too a not too um, distant i guess uh interview that was recorded um not too not too long ago so you hear directly from the host of this event again everything will be linked in the show notes and then you'll hear from um the author of this book stephanie e jones rogers check it out no more 
Hancock is recalling that his grandmother, who was also a child, was given to a young white girl when she was only one. So when we listen to formerly enslaved people, they say these things. Um, they talked about this kind of lifelong process of socialization by which white girls came to understand themselves as markedly different than enslaved people, and the rituals that drove this point home for the enslaved and the free alike. Welcome to Cambridge Forum in Harvard Square, and thanks for joining us on this fine April evening to discuss our ever-evolving history, in particular as it alludes to the legacy of slavery. In the book, They Were Her Property, we are going to examine the role that white women played as slave owners in the American South. According to tonight's guest speaker, Professor Stephanie Jones Rogers, historian and author from UC Berkeley, it is now estimated that 40% of slave owners may have been white women. Contrary to the gone with the wind romanticism we have been sold in Hollywood, many of these women were fiercely active participants in the slave market and constituted a major economic force. They also fought to maintain the wealth and free labor that slavery provided them throughout the Civil War. Yet, as Jones Rogers argues in her book, it was not only white women's ideological and sentimental connections to slavery that made them defend it. Scarlett O'Hara would have been protecting her financial assets too. But to tell us more about the hidden history of white women slave owners in the American South, we're very pleased to welcome someone who spent 10 years researching the topic, Professor Stephanie E. Jones Rogers. So let's start with this handsome young fella. <laughs> this is James Redpath. And in 1859, after touring the antebellum South, the journalist and New York Times, New York Tribune uh, editor, uh, attempted to explain for his readers why white Southern women opposed emancipation. He believed that their sentiments were tied to a lifetime of indoctrination, reared as they were under the shadow of the peculiar institution. Slavery was incessantly praised and defended, he argued, virtually everywhere they went, by everyone they knew, and in most of the publications they read. Their consciences, thus early perverted, were never afterwards appealed to, with the result that they saw no reason to change their views. Redpath assumed that white Southern women did not know Negro slavery as it is because their society shielded them from the institution's horrific realities. Insulated by Southern patriarchs, white women seldom saw slavery's most obnoxious features. They never attend slave auctions, never witness examinations, and seldom, if ever, see the Negroes lashed, he said. More profoundly, they didn't know that the interstate slave trade in slaves was a, quote, gigantic commerce, end quote. Southern men revealed only the South Side view of slavery, Redpath argued. And if the women of the South knew slavery as it is, he was convinced they would join in the protests against it. Redpath's assumptions repre represented a commonly held patriarchal view Yet narrative sources, legal and financial documents, and military and government correspondence make it clear that white Southern women knew the most obnoxious features of slavery all too well. Slave-owning women 
not only witnessed the most brutal features of slavery, they took part in them, they profited from them, and defended them. I highly suggest and recommend that book, y'all. They Were Her Property is riveting. And, of course, Charleston does make some appearances in the book. So you'll you'll learn some stories. Um, trigger warning, content warning, when you do get the book. And I really do encourage everyone to, especially if you live in Charleston and, and if you've been fighting the good fight against how the nonprofit industrial complex have kind of have um, co-opted conversations around race. I'm speaking specifically about the Charleston Forum and that type of really problematic philanthropy and centering of law enforcement and centering of the white experience when trying to deconstruct um, how a white supremacist um, oppression impacts black folk. Um, and, and of course, too, not just about how the nonprofit industrial complex has co-opted the conversation around race here in Charleston, um, but also what I think the book does is help you understand perhaps why Charleston is so hesitant um, when it comes to um, confronting its past and, and giving you the, you know, the, the complete story about um, our country's uh, past. Um, so I'm going to pivot for the next book. I'm going to pivot um, again. Uh, the books in this podcast, all of all of the suggestions, all of these recommendations run the gamut in terms of genre. The next one was a gift from um, a beloved follower and uh, constant uh, joke thrower <laughs> during our uh, morning live streams on Twitch. And this book is called Rise of the Warrior Cop. Uh, this was suggested to me, of course, coming out of the, the summer of 2020, heading into 2021, um, our constant fight here in Charleston, um, our constant fight to um, hold the police force accountable. Of course, for those who don't know, Charleston has been home to historically has been home to some um, pretty awful history when it comes to law enforcement and their policing of black bodies. But instead of getting into all of that, um, one of the books, just let me just recommend this book to read because this book helped me formulate um, a better argument as to why we need to rein in police. Uh, so this next clip features, um, you hear the voices, um, or the, the voice of a host from Vice News, and then you'll hear from Radley Balco. Radley Balco is the author of uh, Rise of the Warrior Cop, and he's also a Washington Post columnist who wrote extensively about SLED here in South Carolina. Uh, and, um, you know, their, their problematic way of policing. And um, if you can check out all of Radley Balco's uh, reporting about South Carolina and um, its law enforcement culture, I, I highly recommend it. I really suggest that folks do that if you can, if you can find that. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a bevy of stories, but I'll link to this Vice interview. Um, I'll link that in the show notes. But here, hear from the author and, um, and Vice News right now about Rise of the Warrior Cop. There are communities out there that fear the police more than they fear criminals. Hi, I'm Raihan Salam. Today, Vice meets Radley Balko, a reporter for The Washington Post and author of Rise of the Warrior Cop. Radley, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So, Radley, we know a bit about what's happened in Ferguson. Mm -hmm. There was an 18-year-old kid who got shot by a police officer, and that's pretty much what we know. And then the community erupted 
in tremendous tension. Uh, and then the police responded very, very aggressively. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there are lots of things going on here. I, I think first is, is what we don't know is very important and why we don't know it is very important. And I think that it has something to do with why the community reacted the way it did. So Ferguson has had uh, cameras that police officers can wear or uh, dash, uh, dash mounted cameras. For whatever reason, they decided not to use them. If that had happened, if they had used them as they were supposed to use them, um, we would know a lot more about what happened that day, and we would know a lot more about, you know, who was at fault, um, whether the shooting was justified. I mean, I think a lot of, you know, the community's outrage is just how the police have reacted to this. Um, when the uh, police chief at Ferguson first talked about the case, you remember he said something to the effect of, you know, he knew, he knew, knew that Brown was shot two times, um, but it may have been more than that, but not a lot more than that. And it was a very sort of, um, uh, kind of callous, uh, kind of brushing off, uh, not, not taking uh, the situation very seriously. And I think that, you know, aggravated a lot of people. I cannot say at this time how many times the sus subject was uh, struck uh, by gunfire. It's hard to know. It was more than just a couple, but I don't think it was uh, uh, many more than that. You know, if you look at the timeline, there was a protest on Sunday afternoon that was peaceful. The police met that protest with a uh, very heavy resistance, um, including a sniper that had a, his gun pointed at protesters. I think that really set the stage for confrontation. Um, you know, when you show up at a protest expecting violence, uh, that tends to be self-fulfilling. Um, the police begin to see the protesters as potential threats, not as people exercising their rights. And the protesters look at police and they see you know, not, you know, when you, when you show up in the riot gear, your face is covered and you've got, you know, the sort of RoboCop gear on and the police see them not as, you know, people who are, are, are there, members of their community who are there to sort of keep order. They see them as this kind of nameless, faceless representation of the institution that they're there to protest against. Um, so, you know, when you immediately respond that way, and of course you have to be prepared, but when you immediately respond with the riot gear and the guns and uh, the show of force, you immediately say to these people, you know, this is not about you expressing your rights. This is about uh, us, you know, sort of telling you where your, your place is. At least that's how it's perceived by protesters. Okay, I'm going to change gears a little bit here um, and, and swerve all the way to another genre that has given me so much joy. Um, okay, let me just let me just be a little little can a little candid, a little open. So the next um the next genre is not for everybody, but it's for me. Um never have I I never thought I'd be someone who'd read romance novels. I don't know why. I just never considered the genre. It, it never was a go-to genre. But then I learned about historical romances and historical romance novels. And I'm like, oh, hold up, hold up. What's that? Then I learned about historical romance novels from the black perspective set in the 18th, excuse me, in the 19th century. And I'm like, whoa, whoa. I discovered Beverly Jenkins over the last year, y'all. And I think I'm on like book 11. I, I cannot like, like I read maybe two Beverly Jenkins novels a month, not even lying. Come, I, I can prove it to you. <laughs> um, and so I want you to hear from the author. This is an excerpt from a few years ago from CBS This Morning. And it's a really quick clip that features Beverly Jenkins. And she explains her work and her genre. And uh, yeah, these are spicy, y'all. These books is a... Uh, these will make you blush. <laughs> so the romance is real, um, but the history included in these novels are amazing. Amazing. So here's more from Beverly Jenkins. Romance rock star Beverly Jenkins. I've got a couple novellas coming out. 
She's another best-selling novelist, writing about African-American heroines from the 19th century, whose stories offer not only lessons in love, but history. It's about values. It's about families. It's about maybe a story that the majority culture does not associate with an African-American background, um, hope and a bittersweet history and taking the lemons that America's given us and making lemonade out of it. Um, I don't know. At the time of this recording, I can't remember. I think I did miss. Um, Beverly Jenkins was invited to speak, to present at the uh, Richland County Public Library, uh, at least virtually. Um, so, um, yeah, maybe you can head over to um, Richland County's uh, Richland County Library's website and, and see if you can check out uh, an interview and an event featuring Beverly Jenkins. I was trying to catch it. I think I missed it, but hopefully they'll they'll have the content available uh, so folks like myself can can watch um, at a later time. All right. So the next book I want to introduce is something that I'm just I have I actually haven't started. I haven't started yet. That's because, um, again, it is my birthday week and shout out to Lynn, um, a friend uh, and another uh, great listener to the the Twitch live stream. Um, Lynn gifted me this book that I've been dying to read. It's called Pleasure Activism. Right, and it's written by Adrian Marie Brown. Um, so here's an excerpt from the uh, Laura Flanders show um, featuring uh, Adrian Marie Brown and also more about this book or what went into this book called Pleasure Activism. All right. There's an us before the wound. There's an us before oppression. And to me, pleasure is a way that we tap down into that. I'm like, when I'm having orgasm, I'm not like, slavery. You know, I'm like, <laughs> you might be my slave, but, you know, like in a good way. Um, it's, it's really about like, oh, I feel very free. To me, the work was about like, how do we remind people that you were free to begin with? You were always free to begin with. For me, I was like, how can I bring like the best feeling when I'm, it's like the best high or the best mushroom away, you know, you know when you're on, how many of you done mushrooms? All right, everybody else just get to it, all right? Life is short, life is short, and if they're natural, okay, it's great. My name is Adrienne Marie Brown. Um, I am the author of Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good. Right now, we are sitting in Blue Stockings um, Bookstore, which is Forever. I used to live in New York. I lived here for like 10 years. Blue Stockings has always been a beloved bookstore for me. So I'm really excited to get to be here tonight. We're doing our New York premiere <laughs> event for pleasure activism. We have been raised to fear the yes within ourselves, our deepest cravings. But once recognized, those which do not enhance our future lose their power and can be altered. The fear of our desires keeps them suspect and indiscriminately powerful. For to suppress any truth is to give it strength beyond endurance. Audre Lorde's text, The Uses of the Erotic, is a foundational text for pleasure activism. And I feel like what she was saying to us, what she was teaching us so much was that pleasure and the erotic, the awakening, the erotic awakening, is a way that we actually reclaim our whole selves, our real selves, our true selves. And that once we have had that awakening, we'll no longer settle for self-negation, we'll no longer settle for suffering. Um, as our way of life is like, oh, this is just how it's got to be because we're black women. I was, you know, I started asking myself, like, how did I unlearn pleasure? Or when did I unlearn pleasure? When I look back, it's like, oh, there's an ancestral unlearning of pleasure, a way that black women on this country have been trained 
to be in service with our bodies, rather to be in pleasure in our bodies. I realize that we're not the only ones, that almost every human on Earth in some way has been disconnected from their natural relationship to the planet, from their natural relationship to themselves, from our natural relationships to each other. And that pleasure is one of the ways we know, like, oh God, I'm in nature. Oh God, I'm with my lover. Oh God, I'm connected. I'm part of something. I belong. I'm safe. Pleasure lets us know all that. Ooh, um, shout out to Lynn uh, for pleasure activism. I, I cannot wait to jump into that book this week. Um, this is the perfect week for me to jump into pleasure activism. My fifth and final selection for this top five list is um, a black woman's history of the United States. So check out this podcast excerpt. Again, all clips that you hear here on the pod, uh, you'll find the longer versions uh, within the show notes. But uh, here's more from the authors of A Black Woman's History of the United States. This is like a must read. I'm, I'm not playing, if, especially if you live, if you love the South. Yeah. If you live in the South, if you live in the Black Belt, you got to read this book. I, seriously. All right. Check it out. A new book by history professors Dinah Ramey Berry and Callie Nicole Gross adds a level of depth and detail to American history that has long been ignored. Titled A Black Woman's History of the United States, the book begins before 1619 and ends in present day. In the introduction, Dinah and Cale wrote, Callie wrote, African-American women's history is marked by the ways that we have marched forward against all odds to effect sustained change individually, locally, and nationally. Here to tell us more about some of that history... Dinah Rami Berry, professor of history at the University of Texas. Hi, Dinah. Hi there. And Callie Nicole Gross, professor of history at Rutgers. Callie, nice to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Sure, Dinah. So you choose an interesting way of organizing the timeline for the book. You write in the book, though there are many points where the book's organization is aligned with traditional historical periodization, we have endeavored to use a timeline most significant to black women's experiences. So just so our audience can understand, can you give us an example of a significant moment for your timeline, for a black woman's timeline that maybe doesn't necessarily intersect or mirror a traditional timeline of U.S. history? Absolutely. One of the first um, things that we try to do is think about what impacted African-American women or women of African descent. One of the first um, key moments for black women in this country was 1662 and 1663. There was legislation in colonial Virginia and Maryland that said that the status of the enslaved person was defined by the mother. So any babies that African American women of African descent gave birth to that were enslaved, their children were enslaved too. So that is an important date for African-American women's history and not a date that necessarily makes its way into mainstream textbooks. Callie, in the introduction you write, we refuse to regard black women's history as purely oppositional or existing solely in combat with gendered racist oppression, yet we cannot deny the effects of its negative impact. So what do we lose by focusing only on black women's fight against oppression? I think one of the things that we really tried to stress was black women's humanity. Mm -hmm. And if we only focus on how they respond to white racism, we lose that vision, right? That black women, one of the things that is so incredible about this history is that in spite of crippling, you know, racism, brutal violence, you know, poverty, you know, corrupt laws, black women still manage to find ways to celebrate themselves and their families. They, you know, create businesses, they ring out a culture, 
they create art, music, literature. They find ways to love. Um, they worship. So we wanted them to be fully human and vibrant through these pages, not only just in responding to white racism. I have to tell you, I, I learned so much from this book. It, you know, African-American history is my jam, and I love it. <laughs> I, but I still, I learned so much. I, I couldn't have said it better, that, that last part. And she was like, you know, I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty adept when it comes to African-American history. And yet this book and many of the books that I've kind of shared with you all um, taught me so much more than I, th- than I, th- I guess, initially thought I knew. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I hope that you have similar revelations. Um, I love this. about That's what, one thing I love about, um, you know, immersing myself in my favorite book, whether it be historical fiction, romance, um, you know, anything like that. Um, what I love about that is that how much these books and, and the capable writers and historians that craft these books, how much how much broader they make me, how much, I guess, bigger is the word that I want to to settle on. I feel like I'm, I'm a bigger, more expansive person having read um, from these books that I've suggested. Um, well, well, pleasure activism soon right <laughs> well i hope you enjoyed this top five uh book list uh again more information will be included within the uh, show notes of this podcast and yeah i hope you enjoyed it and please um if you can commit to picking up one of these books you'll be better for it seriously they they are really really dope uh thank you to everyone who sent me books over the last couple of years I have myself a little library going on in this little tiny apartment, and uh, I love it. Thank you so much, all right? So I'm going to sign off here. Thank you for joining me this week. Uh, I need y'all to all please stay well. Um, Please, please make sure you take care of yourselves, especially if you live here in Charleston. Uh, And to all my Gullah Geechee people, y'all stay black. Hold up. One final postscript. I just realized that I neglected to give you a single offering from Beverly Jenkins. I just talked about Beverly Jenkins and didn't tell you what books to start with. Start with Indigo. Okay. Start with Indigo, then Vivid. Then um, you can probably bounce around a little bit. She does have certain series, like certain novella series, but start with Indigo, Vivid, but you got to get to Forbidden. You got to get to Forbidden has been optioned by Sony Pictures, so that might be something coming up. You know, I'm, I'm hoping after Bridgerton's success, hopefully. Okay, that's it. That's it. All right. Bye.